Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. Today we will be talking all about how childhood trauma tends to continue to echo in our adult lives. I am Autumn, the older sister, and my fact of the day is in regards to one of the ways in which trauma echoes in my adult life, and that is that... I have a very difficult time making mistakes. And I know nobody likes making mistakes, but when I make one, even a simple one, even a tiny one, I get a rush of anxiety. My adrenal system goes off. I feel like I can't breathe. My fingers tingle. It has been well over 20 years since I have been in the home that produced this wonderful effect in me. And it's been well over 20 years where a teeny tiny decision could have been a life or death matter. Yet still to this day, when I make a mistake, I feel it rattling in my bones. I definitely ended up with some of that as well, though I think not quite to the degree that you did. Uh, I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and my trauma-associated fact for the day is that the biggest way that my childhood trauma has echoed in my life is dissociation. Now, I know there's lots of reasons why experiencing trauma can cause dissociation, and a lot of people experience it. And I'm sure it's a complex, multifaceted thing for me as well. But when I think of my dissociation, the first thing that comes to mind for me is just the isolation that I felt as a child. I really spent most of my time feeling completely invisible and unimportant in our family. And then our family was so isolated from everybody else that a lot of times I could go days or weeks without interacting with anyone who was not a member of our family. Between the isolation from the rest of the world and then the isolation that I felt within the family unit and the fear that I had around being noticed because I kind of wanted to hide because I didn't want to get in trouble and you never knew who was going to explode for what reason. So I actually spent a lot of time trying to be invisible. And I think because of that, I really have a hard time connecting with the outside world or even with my own body. I think it's kind of interesting too, because I ended up reacting the other way where I got bigger because since I was the golden child what I could do was I could distract people from Ivy which was the scapegoat and offer some form of protection so I kind of find it interesting because even in our adult lives when we're together if there's a stressful situation that involves others you will see me get very big and you will see her get very small and I get very big so that she can get very small. And again, it's been a long damn time since we were in that household. Yet even to this day, we, we still see these patterns repeating. And we're going to talk even more about that in this episode. Now, before we jump into the meat and potatoes of all of this today, I do have an exciting announcement. Drum roll, please. We have selected a winner for the Grandma Bus Prize. As a dedicated listener, you are no doubt aware that we were running a contest called the Grandma Bus Prize in which we were going to bestow a random, God knows what kind of object, on one of our listeners who submitted topic ideas. And the listener that was selected was Tracy out of Montana. So thank you, Tracy, for submitting your topics. And thank you to all of our other listeners for submitting your topics. But Tracy, as the winner, we will be sending you a random, unknown, questionable object. 
All right, let's go ahead and jump into our topic of today more fully. So there are so many ways that trauma repeats in our adult life. Now, typically when we think about trauma and we think about PTSD, our mind always goes straight to triggers. And we will be talking about triggers some later on in the episode, but there are so many other ways that trauma ends up echoing in our adult lives. So the first one I want to talk about is being pulled back in to familiar patterns when with family. So I talked about that a little bit with Ivy, that when her and I were in a stressful situation, I would get bigger and she would get smaller. And part of that is because we're being pulled back into a familiar pattern. We've talked in the past, both in the blog and the podcast episodes, about how our bodies like creating a sense of homeostasis, how we like to have this idea of normal that our body is always fighting to get back to. And that's not just for our body, that's also for the family or relational units we're a part of. When you have a dysfunctional family, you have dysfunctional patterns. And when you're around each other, you get pulled back into those patterns. And the thing is, this happens even for regular families, for normal or healthy or functional or however you want to term that. This is why you see those 40-year-old kids that all of a sudden they get around mom and they start acting like a teenager again when they're a professional lawyer and would never act like that any other time. But they get around their mom, they get around their dad, they're home for the holidays, and all of a sudden they start acting like they're 13 again. Part of what that is, is being around people that we were around as children, encourage our brains to go down the same behavioral and emotional paths that we experienced when we were children. And while this can be mildly annoying or even humorous when you have a non-traumatic family, it can be very scary and frightening and interfering with your life when you do have a traumatic family history. I know in a general sense, one of the most common things that I hear from people, whether they have strained relationships with their families or not, is that as much as they love their families, they're glad they don't live too close to them or they want to move further away from them. And I think that's part of why. And I don't think everybody is necessarily aware that that's what's going on with them. But I think a lot of people, not everyone, some people love their families and they want to spend as much time with them as possible. But I do feel like there's a lot of people out there who, if given the opportunity, would love to visit their families occasionally, but live someplace far enough away that their family is not really a huge part of their day to day lives. And it's because I think we get pulled into these same patterns with our families and there's a disconnect between who we are in every other context versus who we are when we're with our families, whether we are close to our families emotionally or not. You know, I can even speak to this from the more healthy range with my boyfriend because we started dating. He was in his early 20s. He's a very calm person, very little ruffles his feathers, yet whenever he would get around his parents during our first part of dating, he would start acting like a moody 13-year-old. And it just, it made me laugh. And I'm sure it was annoying for everybody involved. I know it was annoying for him. I'm sure it was annoying for his parents as well, trying to deal with a 13-year-old for this many years. But one of the nice things about when you come from a healthy, loving family is those roles and those ideas aren't as rigid. And so over the eight or so years we've been together, I've seen Jake be able to grow and now he can interact with his family as an adult because their patterns and his patterns have both allowed that change to happen. 
But when you have that traumatic background, more often than not, you do have a very dysfunctional family. And when that happens, you get these very rigid roles. So it's not only that you're fighting that neurobiology, but you're also fighting that rigidity that's just not wanting to allow you to change at all. And even when you have both people involved in this or all people involved in this, if you're looking at the larger family dynamic, even if everybody is on board with trying to have healthier and more mature relationships with each other, those patterns can be really, really hard to fight. And I've definitely experienced this even within the context of my own family. Most of my relationships in the family were pretty strained. Autumn and I are very close, obviously, but has not really been the case with most other members of the family. Family. And this comes to mind particularly with my brother and I, where I feel like both of us over the years have tried very hard to improve our relationship and to meet on more level ground as two adults. And yet we continually get pulled back into our, our same old patterns, which are not great. I think part of it's the age difference. There's 11 years between us. And there were all of those strained family dynamics that cause rifts in our relationship. And then also he and I are like night and day. We are so completely different that it's hard for us to even find things to talk about. And we usually, if we spend too much time together, we end up fighting. And it's usually over stupid things. And it's just repetition of patterns that we had when we were growing up together. And so as much as we have both tried, and I think there genuinely is love there between my brother and I, it's relatively easy for me at this point to you know, visit him for a day or to sit down to a meal with him. But there's no way in hell, no matter how much I love my brother, that I could spend a week under the same roof with him because we would drive each other absolutely insane. And for the most part, that would be because even though we are two very different people than we were when we were growing up and we've both changed, we've both matured, we've both grown in a lot of ways, even though we both really want to have an improved relationship and be closer, it's really hard to do because there are so many differences between us as people. And that's just compounded by the old patterns that we had in our childhood home where we did fight like cats and dogs all the time. It's really hard to break that pattern. One of the reasons that Ivy and I are closer and have been able to be closer is because fortunately the patterns in our childhood home did allow for us to be compatible with one another. And so we spent most of our life repeating the same patterns we experienced during childhood. It's just that they were compatible. It's only within the last few maybe months or years or so that we've actually been able to begin breaking away from those patterns because they are so strong and so compelling. And that rigidity just makes it so difficult to overcome those those neural pathways that you've built when you're around that other person. Now, family aside and people that were present during the trauma aside, I think another way that trauma echoes into our adult lives is that we end up seeking out familiar relationships. We talked about this a little bit in episode four, the compatibility in relationships, the importance of matching and complementary baggage, about how we have this tendency to seek out people that feel like love. We have this idea of what love is, 
based on how we were raised, based on the attachments that were created with our parents. And if you went through childhood trauma, it's a good chance that your caregivers were part of the, the givers of trauma. And so our attachments are skewed and our sense of love is skewed and our sense of what a healthy relationship is, is skewed. And so one of the ways that that trauma repeats then is that we seek out these familiar relationships as much as we're running away from that trauma and we're running away from that fear and we never want to feel that way again it's also what we know as normal it's also how we know how to connect and so we end up finding ourselves in intimate relationships with people that are repeating the same patterns we hope to escape. Even in relatively healthy, normative families, you can even see that. In our family, anytime there's a conflict and it exploded and everybody was yelling, it was pure chaos and it felt like the world was going to end and we were all going to die. But I've known lots of people who their usual way of interacting with their family is bickering. You know, they're yelling at each other from across the room. They're teasing each other. They're fighting over nothing. And when I've been around those dynamics, it makes me super nervous because, again, I think the world is going to end. But for them, that's just how they would normally interact anyway. It would be very difficult for me to ever be in a romantic or intimate relationship with somebody who's like that because since that's what they were used to, they tend to carry that into other relationships in adulthood. For them, it's normal to have just bickering and arguing and teasing each other and raised voices, not so much that they're actually angry. I think a lot of those families, they genuinely do love each other and they enjoy each other's company. It's just their way of interacting with one another involves a lot of passion and drama. And that's that's just how they operate. So I think you even see that in neurotypical and in um, relatively normative healthy families that those patterns tend to carry on into adulthood and people tend to recreate those patterns in their relationships as adults. And again, when you come from that normative, healthy, loving family, it's usually not an issue because those bonds, even if they seem berserk or even if they seem loud or aggressive, are at their base loving and healthy. But when you come from a traumatic background and those bonds were not loving or healthy, you're then repeating those forward. You're creating that trauma again in your life. And this can be in many ways as well, because, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, somebody that was abused seeks out somebody to abuse them again. And that does happen. But there's also cases such as mine where I was the golden child. I was also a caregiver and an enabler. That was my main role in the household was the enabler and the caregiver. And I have found myself getting into all sorts of relationships where I am both one idolized and where I have to take care of my partner as much as I hate it and as much as I resent it. Now, the thing is, though, <laughs> you can do a couple things. You can do a lot of work and you can learn to recreate these neural pathways and learn a different way of loving. Or you can find a healthy way to transmute these tendencies, I guess, because in my current relationship, for example, I do still care for my boyfriend a lot. And that's because he is ADHD and he does not do well with a lot of executive functioning. I'm pretty sure if I left him alone for a week, he would not feed himself beyond maybe two Mentos and a Pepsi or something horrible like that. So I end up caring for him a lot. But I've also found ways to allow him 
to care for me and him to balance that load out. And so now instead of me providing all of the resources for the relationship, I still have some degree of comfort because I am providing for my loved one. I am providing for my partner. I'm finding comfort in that giving because I feel like I need to to show love. But I've also been able to receive back. And so now it's not resentful. And now it's not me just depleted all the time. It's both of us providing and giving to each other. And you can transmute some of those relationships in that way. This doesn't even just happen in intimate relationships. I think this can happen in other areas as well, because I've even seen this in work relationships where we repeat that trauma from our childhood. So you see a lot of people that have had a traumatic childhood background. You know, they come out and maybe they've figured out how to deal with it and they're functioning and they enter into really high stress occupations or caregiving occupations. Or maybe they even just go into a, a job that's not high stress at all, but they end up being the one that casts to do everything or manages all of the stress for the office. So I think we end up repeating this not just intimately, but in so many arenas of our life. I've definitely seen that play out in my own life. My favorite job that I ever had, it was my first full-time job. I worked at a jail for a good portion of the time that I worked there. I was working in the booking department. That is an extremely high stress job. And I was there for two years and I miss it so much. There have been so many times that I've almost considered going back into corrections as a profession because I do miss that stress. I miss the rush. I miss the adrenaline. I miss the craziness because when you work in booking, you see it all. When it first comes in, a lot of people are crazy. They're high. They're aggressive. They're angry. There's so much variety of madness. And I enjoyed that. And I know that sounds weird because you would think growing up in a very traumatic and dysfunctional home, I would try my best to avoid chaos and madness and that adrenaline rush and the high stress. But that's, that was my absolute favorite job. I mean, I've been working in massage now for about a decade and it's a, it's a great gig, but I'd be lying if I said there weren't times that I wish I could go back to a job that gave me that rush the way that the jail did. And I think, too, you can see this in people who maybe don't necessarily think that they're choosing a high stress lifestyle or that they're not repeating the same patterns as maybe their parents type of stress in a professional environment. And I've seen this in, in my boyfriend with him and his family. So his parents worked in high stress environments, but they were more of a corporate nature, uh, very white collar professions. Calvin, he chose the military. He did two tours of duty in Iraq. That is very, very stressful, but it's not the same type of stress as what his parents chose. And so that I think in his mind, he gets frustrated with that corporate world type thing. And he's like, why would I ever want to be part of that? That's so stressful. And I'm like, dude, you were in a combat zone, but he doesn't consider it as being the same. He feels like he's broken those patterns that his parents had in their work environment but he hasn't entirely. He just chose a different type of stress. He chose different scenery for it, but he still chose a high stress environment to work in same way with the, his parents did. 
we do end up repeating that in so many ways. And I think that's partially because we carry that stress with us. And when you are in a completely calm environment and a very laid back job and your whole body thinks you're going to die and you're freaking out and it feels like there's a crisis when there isn't one, you feel a little bit insane. Or if you were the caregiver role like I was and you see somebody and you feel like you need to meet all of their needs and provide their food for them and check in on them to make sure they haven't soiled themselves, you look really crazy in a typical relationship. But if you find a position where that doesn't seem crazy, it seems correct, it's it's easier. You feel valid. You no longer feel insane. I mean, a lot of people think that living off grid is extremely stressful, and it is, don't get me wrong, but I love this kind of stress because in my mind, everything is life or death. Oh my God, we could die. Oh my God, this is so horrible. Something horrible could happen. And in my current life, that is true. I have to keep my wood-burning stove working throughout the winter or on one of those negative 40 weeks that we get, we could all literally freeze to death. This is a thing that could happen. And I know that sounds horrible that you want to enter back into that level of stress, but in my mind, I'm like, yes, now my worries are valid. Now this makes sense. And while that seems like it would be counterintuitive, in some ways it's actually helpful because I can handle the stress. I've already handled this level of intensity and this level of stress and this level of worry for 20, 30 years, but it was misplaced. And so I was handling the stress and I was also handling the feelings of being crazy. And now I'm just back to handling the stress. And it's stress that I can do something about. It's stress that I have control over. It's stress that I have a voice in. And so now because of that, I'm able to in some way start to heal it. I'm able to start recreating some of these scenarios, but now be an adult with a voice that allows me to find a way to heal that part of me that was damaged so that I no longer need to live with this level of stress. That really goes into how sometimes with our trauma, we are attempting to recreate these patterns and recreate these dynamics in our current day relationships in at, like as an attempt to heal them, which sounds kind of backwards, because why would you put yourself in a relationship dynamic that's similar to one that traumatized you? There is a part of us that often attempts to heal at least ourselves by recreating the dynamics and then trying to repair them in ways that we were not able to repair the original relationship. I'm going to bring up Terrence Real again. I haven't done it in a few episodes, but I'm going to bring him up again because I absolutely love him. He is a family and relationship therapist. One of the things that he has often said is that we marry our baggage. By that, he generally means that we often seek out partners or other people in our lives, but this is especially true of our romantic relationships. We continually seek out partners that in some way mirror or mimic relationships that we had with a difficult parent or possibly both difficult parents. And so he talks about how things are 
supposed to ideally operate from infancy, even the relationship that we have with our mother being a pattern of harmony, disharmony and repair. And that starts even in infancy. So you have the relationship between the mother and the infant is wonderful and amazing. And they have that closeness. And then the baby ends up needing something and they start crying. And then sometimes the mom can't figure out right away what's going on. And so you have this, this tension and this disharmony between them. And then once the mother is able to figure out what's going on and what the infant needs, she's able to provide that need. And so they can go into a space of repair in their dynamic. And that's just a very, very basic example. But then as you move further into your childhood and you're growing up, you still go through those patterns. And this is every relationship that you have with anybody that's even remotely intimate. You have these patterns of harmony, disharmony, and repair. But sometimes what happens for, most of the time what happens for children that grow up in really dysfunctional families is that you have maybe just the the first two parts, or maybe you only have disharmony, but you never have repair. So you either have that harmony and then the disharmony, this disillusionment and disappointment and feeling let down, feeling neglected, feeling abandoned, whatever it was for you, but you never get the opportunity to repair because the other person is either unable to provide for your needs or they're unwilling to provide for your needs or they're uninterested in repairing that damaged relationship. And so as we move into adulthood, we're still seeking out that repair. And so what happens a lot of times is that we get involved with people who do mirror or mimic aspects of caregivers in our early childhood that caused disharmony. We often see a lot of similar good qualities too, but we are drawn to the things that caused disharmony. And part of the reason why we're doing that at a subconscious level is this desire to repair those relationship dynamics. Now, you're not attempting to repair it with the original person, but you are reliving and you are replaying out those same patterns because you are attempting to heal. And even if you can't heal that original relationship, if you can heal similar things in a current relationship, there is a sense of closure there a sense of hope there and a sense of being able to feel that love and re-enter a state of harmony in some way, shape, or form. So that happens to a lot of people. Even people who don't have necessarily a super traumatic background, they may still seek out those things that remind them of a caregiver, somebody that they had a close intimate connection to as a child or that they relied on as a child because they're seeking to heal these very specific things. They're seeking that harmony again. They're seeking to feel loved. They're seeking to have that deep, close connection of love between two people. It's a very fine line, though, between healing and just continuing to re-traumatize yourself again and again. And I think that comes in with awareness and making those changes. Because if you're not aware that is what you're doing, you can't use this model, you can't use this idea to then help create the changes that you need to heal. And I feel like the ideas that Ivy was talking about as I was listening, I'm like, I've heard that repeated in psychoanalytical stuff. I've heard that repeated in some of the Gestalt work I've, I've brushed up against and even inner child work. All of that is talking about to some degree repeating those patterns, encountering the same idea of the person that you had the issues with so that you can then 
create change. And we are drawn to do that. And we are drawn to, to, I think, heal ourselves. I think we're all drawn to heal ourselves. But if we don't have the awareness that that's what we're naturally drawn to do, we can end up re-traumatizing ourselves. Sometimes even we can enter into healthy relationships and because we are trying to heal and this person is so different, we end up trying to recreate the trauma with them. And I think that's another way that we end up having those childhood traumas echo into our adult life is even when we get into healthy, solid, stable relationships, we end up creating familiar ones again. We And sometimes this is intentional and sometimes it's unintentional and we don't even realize we're doing it. You know, one of the ways it's, it's intentional is we are creating what we believe is normalcy. Ivy talked about that more healthy, loving, normative family and they communicate and they demonstrate love through yelling and passion and loudness. Well, if one of those individuals gets with somebody that is very quiet and very reserved and doesn't demonstrate a lot of emotion, it's likely that they may try to encourage the person to be louder or to push them and push them and push them until they argue back, not because they're trying to hurt the person or necessarily even change the person, but they believe this is normal. They believe this is healthy. And if you're holding all this inside and you're bottling it up, then it's going to hurt you or you don't really love me because you're not being passionate about it. And they're intentionally trying to recreate a familiar relationship or a familiar pattern. This can also happen with trauma where we intend create it because sometimes we don't always realize what is love and what is abuse. When the people that hurt you, the people that abuse you are the people that are supposed to love you, it becomes very easy to confuse abuse and love. And so sometimes we're trying to encourage a partner or a person or a friend or a coworker to react to us in a way that we believe is normal and healthy and okay but we're actually trying to encourage them to react to us in a way that is re-traumatizing. Another way that this can pop up is, is not as conscious. You're not necessarily trying to create what you believe is normal in the way things should be. But I think sometimes people recreate these familiar relationships by assuming that the people in their current relationships will act and think and behave in similar ways as people that they had strained relationships with before. So I've definitely encountered this in my relationship with Calvin. The first year that we lived together was a real challenge for both of us. <laughs> we butted heads a lot. Both of us made this mistake and that mistake was assuming that the other person was motivated by and acting in similar ways to somebody from our past. One of the the, th the most common things that I ended up saying to Calvin in the first year of our relationship is, I am not your ex and I am not your mom. Now, his mom is a wonderful person, but Calvin and his mom are like my brother and I, night and day. They could not possibly be more different. And so they do trigger each other a lot because his mom is more on the anxious side of things. And she's very much a caregiver and she tends to worry about the people that she loves. Calvin hates being worried about and he hates having somebody checking on him all the time and he feels very smothered. And so he would make assumptions 
that I was operating from a similar space as his mom, or that I was operating from a similar space as his ex-girlfriend from his last long-term relationship, who was a very controlling and possessive and jealous person. So when we lived together for that first year, one of the most common problems that we ran up against was that he would be late getting home from wherever because He's just one of those guys that however long something takes is how long it takes. So he'll be home when he gets home. But he would give me an estimate of when he would be home. And then he'd be an hour, two hours, three hours late. And I would go into a panic because I would be afraid that he was dead somewhere or that he was you know, seriously injured or something like that. I was concerned about his safety. And then I would go into overdrive with my trauma reactions, which was calling and calling constantly because I was fearful that something horrible had happened to him. And then he would get mad at me because he would think that either I was trying to control him or that I was worrying too much. And so one of the things that we fought about all the time was him and his time management and how that affected me and then how my reactions were affecting him. And I had to continually remind him I am not your ex. I'm not being possessive and jealous and controlling. I don't think you're out there cheating on me or doing anything like that. I don't need to be with you every single second of the day. I just need to know that you're alive. And no, I'm not your mom. I'm not constantly checking up on you to make sure that you got things done that you were supposed to get done and doing all of those things that moms do, that most moms do, I think. I am not doing that either. I literally just need to know that you're not dead. But that was one of the biggest arguments that we had over and over and over again for that first year. And sometimes it still rears up. So I think sometimes people recreate those patterns, not necessarily because they're trying to intentionally create what's normal for them, but because they're making assumptions that the people in their life now are coming from the same space and acting from the same space as people from their past. I found myself doing that more humorous note with alcohol. So our, our mother was alcoholic, caused a lot of issues, obviously, in our family unit. When I was 18, I first started dating and I dated this man who I would say was extremely healthy, especially when it came to his relationship with alcohol, but he would on occasion have a beer when he came home in the evening, a single beer, maybe once or twice a week. The only experience I'd ever had with alcohol was my mother. So I found out he drank because I opened the refrigerator one night and there was a six pack and I lost my shit and I laid into him about how I could not get married to an alcoholic and it wasn't okay and there was a dramatic scene in the parking lot of his uh, dorm area he was living while I poured the six pack of beer into the street because obviously if you ever had a beer you were going to be an alcoholic and and that's ridiculous now but that's the kind of mindset you come from and those are the, the things you you expect. And when you do them more subtly, you do end up almost creating those patterns. Because when you do have somebody that has maybe a drink, and then they have a stressful day, and it's two, and then you start getting on to them about, oh, maybe you're abusing, and maybe you're an alcoholic, and all of a sudden, you start pushing them towards that. And you create that pattern. And you're like, see, I was right. And you prove yourself right. And that's not what was happening at all. You just completely rewrote the entire story to meet the expectation you previously had. We do this as well as a form of punishment where we're recreating this. We either think we don't deserve more or we should be hurt and either intentionally or unintentionally 
we seek that out in our partners or in our relationships or even in, in our jobs. And we're willing to be stipped all over by our bosses or coworkers because we think we don't deserve any more than that. Or we've been taught to believe that that is all we deserve. And so it's okay for other people to do that. And you do become the people pleaser or the doormat for that reason. It can also happen subconsciously where we end up recreating these familiar relationships. One of the things I found in my life, which it took me a long time to realize I was doing this, was I unconsciously was triangulating and manipulating people in my work environments. Whenever I had a work environment and there was a work group, if there was me and at least two other people, I would triangulate those people. And that means basically I go to person A and I talk bad about person B so that me and person A's connection is really good. And then I do the same thing with person B, telling them about person A and what they said and how they weren't a great person. So me and person B's connection was really good. And this sounds really horrible and it sounds like a shit stir, but this is actually a very common reaction for people that grew up in trauma because it's how you stay safe. If you can ingratiate yourself with somebody, then you're less likely to take the beating. You're less likely to be hurt. You're less likely to be abused. And I was doing this without even realizing it. I wasn't talking super bad, but you'd throw out comments like, oh, I guess they're late again. You know, it's great that you and I are always on time and willing to do the job, but it makes the other person look bad. And once you realize you're doing it, you probably should stop because this does end up blowing up in your face because if person A and person B ever talk to each other about what you said, Well, it's going to cause some really serious issues. But I do think we end up creating these dynamics and creating these relationships again and again and again, maybe in part to heal, maybe in part because it feels normal, maybe in part because we think that's what we deserve or we think that's how you interact. And it isn't. But all of that is just, again, that's how that childhood trauma comes and it echoes out through your adult life. And sometimes you don't even realize it. Also, something that uh, happens, not to everybody, but to some of us, is that instead of trying to recreate familiar patterns, sometimes we try to avoid relationships with other people at all. This is kind of going back to the point of my my fact of the day and the isolation and being in, feeling invisible, wanting to be invisible, not really feeling connected to anybody really at all. And this is definitely carried into my current day life. I don't have a lot of people that I connect with that's definitely direct correlation between the trauma that I experienced as a child and those family dynamics and then how I am now as an adult. It's really difficult for me to have relationships with other people. I'm so used to feeling alone. Not only used to feeling alone, but I got to a point where I enjoyed being alone, being in my own little world, feeling disconnected from the rest of the world. Because when I could disconnect from everything, I could create my own world and my own world was safe. And I could live in my imagination and I could stay in my head and I didn't feel pain and I didn't feel fear and I wasn't worried. And I, I didn't have to be stressed about the people around me and how I was interacting with them. And some of that now is, it's the same. I'm used to it and I enjoy my alone time. I don't really want to be around other people. And some of it is that I have a really difficult time trusting others because in our home environment growing up, the only person I actually felt like I could trust was Autumn. She was the only one. And to this day, Autumn is probably the only person that I have ever given completely 100% of my trust to. I say that, but... 
even with her, there have been moments where I'm like, okay, she's probably going to ditch you someday too. And you need to be prepared for that. Like I've had conversations with myself about that because there is a part of me that assumes that at some point everybody will leave me or they'll forget about me or they won't want anything to do with me. I also have a difficult time trusting that when things are good, that they'll stay that way. There's always a part of me that's waiting for the other shoe to drop. And even when things are good, I feel really overwhelmed in the moment. I feel fear that it's all going to go away. And I also feel fear because I don't know how to handle it when things are good because I want those relationships to stay good. I don't want to lose them because I have so few people I actually really love and care about. So there's this part of me that still keeps distance between me and the people that I love. Because, well, if I keep them at a distance, just enough of a distance that they never really completely see me, then they won't abandon me. Or even when my self-esteem is doing pretty well and I'm surrounded by the people that I love and they're getting along with each other and everything is good and the energy is high and everybody's having a good time, I've had to step away from the group because I would get overwhelmed and I would start almost panicking. I would feel anxious and I wouldn't be able to figure out what was going on in that moment. But now looking back on those times, it's because I was fearful that it was all going to go to shit. Or I was fearful that those people that I was close to, they would decide that they liked each other better than they liked me. And so I needed to prepare myself for the eventuality that I would be abandoned in favor of other people connecting more. Those are things that I have always struggled with and I continue to struggle with to this day. So one of those ways that those patterns can repeat is if you did feel isolated as a child, if you did feel like you were the scapegoat or you felt like you were neglected and nobody noticed you, you were invisible, you didn't matter, you were unimportant. If you had those patterns in childhood, you can carry that on into your adult life too where you don't form connections with people. Or if you do, you always hold those people at arm's length because you just know in your heart of hearts, someday the other shoe is going to drop and they're going to leave you too. Sometimes this is where some of that self-sabotage comes in and that can be yet another adult echo of childhood trauma. A lot of times when you're in that traumatic home, especially if it's out and out abusive, that abuse is unpredictable and you never know when it's going to go bad. And when there are good times, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And having been in those situations, I know it sounds weird maybe to people that haven't been in it, but it is less frightening when shit is happening than when it's not sometimes. And that's because at least you know what's happening. At least you know what's going on and you can react to it as opposed to some spending days or weeks or sometimes even months walking on eggshells just in fear that something bad is going to happen. And so as an adult, once you have power and sometimes even as a child, you make something bad happen just to stop that anxiety from building and strangling you. You just bring it to the culmination so that you can get the bad thing over with and then move on. That's sometimes what we do in adult life too is we end up self-sabotaging. We think, okay, well, something bad's going to happen. That other shoe's going to drop. Something's going to go wrong in this relationship at this job with this dynamic, whatever it happens to be, and we force it to happen. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but we do force it so that we can get that release of going, okay, all right, it happened. Now I can move on. Now I don't have that culmination until it starts to build again and we have to force it. Also, like Ivy was talking about, that lack of trust that is extremely common among 
among everybody that has ever been through traumatic. You have a difficult time feeling trust with others. Trust is very, very hard earned for many of us. Now, there are those that end up on the other side of the boundary and they're too willing to trust absolutely anybody and they just open themselves to every harm possible. But there are a lot of us out there that we don't trust anybody. And like Ivy said, she sometimes doesn't even trust that I won't leave her. And in all honesty, I don't always trust her at all because I don't trust other humans. I I love her. I've been around her my whole life. She has never intentionally done me harm, yet part of me always wonders when she will. The same way with my boyfriend. I've been with him eight years. He's been nothing but supportive and loving, but I don't necessarily trust him. And I think a lot of us that come from those traumatic places do that. Something else we miss out on in our adult lives, and that echoes from that childhood, is safety too. A lot of us never really feel safe. And A really common one with this is if you grew up in a household where food was extremely scarce or it was used as a punishment, you end up hoarding food for years as an adult. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but you look at people, for example, that went through the depression, which was a a generational trauma that was an entire societal trauma. It wasn't inflicted specifically intentionally within a family unit. But those people were 60, 70, 80 years old, and they would have two, three, four pantries full of food because they were terrified of going without it again. You're looking for that sense of safety always, but because it was shattered at such a young age and you never really were able to rebuild it, a lot of us in our adult lives, we also still never feel safe. One of the other ways that childhood trauma echoes into our adult life as well is that we end up intentionally repeating the traumatic patterns forward. So we've talked a little bit about how we might intentionally repeat these patterns for ourselves, but sometimes we also start intentionally repeating them for other people in our life, either our intimate partner or our children. Because part of what happened when we were growing up in these abusive households was the fact that that was how you treated loved ones. Hitting your wife was part of demonstrating love. Beating your child with a belt was part of discipline. And so we see these things as normal to some degree, and we repeat them forward. Sometimes we interpret that abuse as love or acceptable parenting, and we do it for our child's own good. And sometimes we know a little bit better, but we still choose to push it forward anyways, Sometimes too, like part of the reason why we push that those abusive behaviors forward is going back to our earlier point about a sense of normalcy. Like that's what we consider to be normal. It's what we consider to be effective. It's the way things are supposed to be. So building on that, the interpretation of abuse as being a loving thing and, you know, you're doing it for your child's own good. Like I have known so many people who they did get the belt when they were kids. And when you talk to them and you have conversations, they're like, that's what kids these days need. Parenting now is just too soft. You know, sometimes you got to whoop your kid. And I hear that all the time. So in that sense, I think it's not just a family pattern. I think on in some ways, that's a cultural or a generational pattern that did become so normal that we still are seeing echoes of that today. There is starting to be this transition into 
a maybe softer form of parenting where you're having conversations with your kids more and you're giving them more positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement. But that's a relatively new shift. And there's still a lot of people who are even my age who they're carrying that mentality on into their their parenting as sometimes you got to use the belt. They're not talking about beating the living crap out of their kid, but they are talking about using the same forms of parenting that their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents use because that's what's normal and that's what's acceptable parenting to them. And they do think it's for their child's own good. And they are coming from a space of love with it. And, and that's not just with you know, giving your kid a whooping. That can also be putting pressure on them to live a certain way or take a certain path in life. I can't tell you how many people I have interacted with since I decided not to have children who treat me very dismissively for it, who are basically have this attitude that like, oh, you'll change your mind or why wouldn't you want kids? Everybody should have kids. That's just it's this mentality that's just something you do. So I think we see that in other ways as well. You see it in parents who maybe are pushing their kids to a certain career path because they think that's what's going to be best for them instead of seeing their child for maybe the gifts and aptitudes and goals that they have and allowing them to explore those things that they actually want to do and thinking, no, that's not going to be successful. You need to do this instead. This is what success looks like. This is what will make you happy. This is what will make you money. This is what will give you security. Even though we don't treat that as something that is abusive behavior, it can begin to border on abusive when you're completely invalidating your children or you're invalidating an entire generation worth of people who are trying to take a different path through life than previous generations did. Sometimes we do these things as well because we are trying to make our own parents proud or we're trying to appease them in some way. So, you know, that example I was just using of parents who pressure their kids to take a certain career path through life, we may take that career path because we're trying to make that parent proud. We're trying to, to you know, keep them from putting that pressure on us or, or disapproving of us. We're trying to prevent that from happening. And then sometimes we end up recreating that same pattern for our own kids going forward. And you just have generation after generation after generation doing this these things. And it makes it seem so normal and it's how it should be even when it's something that is abusive or it is part of a broken system or it is an outdated and archaic way of thinking a lot of times we continue carrying that on culturally and generationally and in our families as well a really good example of that also is the idea of the toxic masculinity that you hear a lot about now but that idea of like, well, little boys shouldn't cry and you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can't show emotion if you're a boy. All of those things, I believe, are psychologically damaging, maybe not traumatizing, but psychologically damaging to tell somebody they need to cut off a normal, healthy part of themselves. And it does cause issues. And we do see that throughout our culture that's echoing throughout our culture. But we think that's going to help them succeed or it may even help them succeed because super masculine people may do very well as a CEO or a doctor or whatever it is you're hoping for that child. But this is a broken system. So they're going to succeed in a broken system and to succeed in a broken system to some degree you need to be broken. And so we repeat that generationally. We repeat that culturally in hopes to help the child and hopes to show love to the child. 
speaking on a, a somewhat generational cultural vantage point, I also see a lot of social media stuff out there about how well, back in my day, I had to do this and deal with that and put up with this and you should have to too. Like my life wasn't fair. My life wasn't easy. So yours shouldn't be either. And I usually, I, I usually bite my tongue on these things personally because I don't have kids. I've not added to the next generation. So I don't know that I have a, a lot of right to talk about it. But I do always think about that. And I always think, well, as a loving parent, don't you want your child's life to be better? Don't you want them to have more advantages than you have? Don't you want them to be more successful, more healthy, more loved? It, because it, in my mind, when I hear those things, I hear you saying, well, I was abused, so you should be too. I was hurt, so you should be hurt. I wasn't given this, so you shouldn't have it either. I starved as a child, so you should starve as a child now. And that's very concerning for me, that sort of mentality. Like I said, I usually bite my tongue because maybe it's coming from somewhere I don't quite understand given that I'm not a parent. And I do get the idea of challenging your children so that they are able to succeed in the world and not just providing them everything so they never have to work for it and they never learn. But just because you were hurt, just because you were beat, just because you were starved, it doesn't make sense to me that you would want to perpetuate that on to your children. You know, I get that life wasn't fair for you and it hurt you, but why do you want that for your kids? But I do feel generationally there is that concept out there that, well, in order for life to be fair, you should have to deal with the same shit I did. Yeah, this is maybe one of the many reasons I decided not to have kids because this is an, actually an area where I do feel kind of conflicted. Because while I do like this movement towards a kinder, more validating, more positive reinforcement style of parenting that we're seeing today, I do like that. But I also look at the world around us and I'm like, but the world is still really, really fucking harsh. So how do you prepare your child for the harshness of the world while still giving them the love and validation and support that they need? I really struggle with how you balance that, which is one of the many reasons I decided not to have kids, because I don't know the answer to that. And maybe this is one of the ways that trauma is representing in my life as an adult now as well, is that even if it's not coming from a space of, well, I experienced these things, so you should have to experience these things too, I would still really struggle because I would not want to give my child all of this love and support and encouragement and validation and positive reinforcement and give them the idea that that is what normal is if I then have to later send them into a world where that will put them at a disadvantage where they have to deal with harshness that they never had to deal with at home. So I don't know where the balance is on that. And I think that there's other people that probably struggle with that same balance as well, where they want to give their kids that more loving and kinder and softer and gentler and validating you know, life within their home, but still want to prepare them for the fact that the world is not fair and the world can be very harsh and the world can be a very dangerous and traumatic place. That goes back to then, not just how our childhood trauma echoes into our adult life, but how generational trauma echoes throughout society. 
you know, in order to be successful in a broken world, to some degree, you have to be broken. And so do you intentionally break your child so that they will fit into the system to some degree? And that's just a very, very frightening thought to me, because (laughs) it's not just this personal familial trauma echoing down a line. It's an entire generations of trauma echoing throughout our entire society, which is very disheartening. So we've talked a lot about the general overarching ways in which our childhood trauma echoes into adult life, those dynamics we repeat, the relationships that we have. Now let's focus on some of the more specific ways in which we see these echoes. Let's focus now on maladaptive behaviors. Now this is not going to be an exhaustive list because when you've had an entire childhood of trauma, there's probably a lot of maladaptive behaviors that you brought from childhood into adulthood. But we do want to focus on some of the more common common ones. I want to point out right at the beginning of this, though, that all of these maladaptive behaviors were likely at some time a form of self-protection. They were how we managed to navigate and survive an abusive, a neglectful, a traumatic environment. But now that we've gotten out into the world, now that we've escaped that trauma to some degree, these behaviors don't necessarily make sense and they leave us with issues. And so the very first one I'm going to point out is the one I talked about in my fact of the day is inability to make mistakes. A lot of us that grew up in traumatic homes, there was a lot writing on minor decisions. This is a really common one you see for gifted children that were pushed a little too hard because they felt like whatever they did had to be perfect in order to earn love. In my case, my my mom was extremely volatile. If you said the wrong thing or you did the wrong thing, and to me, I joked about it, but it even felt to me like if I wore the wrong shirt, she would have a bad day and a bad day could result in a suicide attempt. And so I felt like if I did the wrong thing, somebody would die. And that is almost what it equated to in my mind. And in some way, that was my reality. If I did the wrong thing, if I didn't say the right thing, if I made a mistake, if I wasn't perfect, then something horrible was going to happen. My mom was going to try to kill herself. Ivy would get slapped around. Dad would disappear for days. Whatever it happened to be, all of that was on my shoulders. And I had to be perfect constantly to make sure it never happened. But I'm not in that environment anymore. And my mistakes aren't that important. And so if I drop a mug and I break it or I make an inventory error at work, it's not the end of the world. But because for so many years, formative, important years for my brain, it was the end of the world. It still feels that way today. And another common one that we have also is people pleasing. They talk about the the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response now. I am a fawner. I am the biggest fawner. And I automatically do this because I see everybody as a threat because it goes back to that I don't trust people because of my childhood. All other humans are threats. And because being around a threat activates your adrenal system, my automatic reaction to other people is to try to please them, to make them happy, to fawn 
all over them. Another one that's really common and that I definitely struggle with is the hyper responsibility and also a hyper independence. These don't necessarily go hand in hand, but a lot of times they do. And every time that I, I think about this, it, it always brings to mind that Kelly Clarkson song, Because of You. And I feel like I have really lived my life by that. That hyper responsibility and the hyper independence is, it, it's multifaceted there's more than one thing to it. Like I am that way in part because I couldn't rely on the people who should have been my caregivers to care for me. So I had to be responsible. Autumn did a lot, but I mean, she was still a kid too. And on some level, even as a small child, I understood that. So I learned to take care of myself as much as possible and to be really independent because there wasn't anybody there who really was fulfilling that role who was intended to fill that role and autumn was a child as well so she could only handle so much so part of it was that and then part of it also was very similar to that kelly clarkson song you know talking about not wanting to become like that person like i watched my parents be for lack of a better word a shit show both of them were shit shows in their own way. And I would look at them and think, fuck, I don't want to be like that. And so that hyper responsibility, that hyper independence was also coming from that as well. It's like, no, I will be responsible for myself and I'm going to be better at doing that than you are. You're adults. You're supposed to be my parents. You're supposed to have your shit together. You're supposed to be able to handle life and you're horrible at it. So, you know, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that you do. I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to be reckless. I'm going to take care of all of my responsibilities. I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard. I am going to make sure that I do not become you. For me, those are the two biggest things. I couldn't trust anybody to actually help me or be there for me. And I also did not want to become like the examples that I had provided for me because they were awful. <laughs> they were they were not good examples of how to just even manage day to day and be functional human beings. I totally relate to that as well. You know, I didn't even have my first drink of alcohol until I was well into my 30s because I was terrified of becoming an alcoholic, which my mom had been and my father had been at one point and generations had been and I was scared it was in my blood. So I didn't even touch alcohol until well into my 30s. And even now I monitor that very closely because I am still terrified that there's some part of me that's just going to snap and become an alcoholic. I also find it very interesting because this is the first time I realized that Ivy ties together her hyper responsibility and her hyper independence. And I find this very interesting to me because I've always tied together my hyper responsibility and my tendency to create codependent relationships. So it kind of went the opposite way for me. Ivy and I actually did, uh, we recorded one of our Patreon bonus specials, uh, Non Necessarily Disastrous, about what happens when your partner is upset with you. And one of the things that I brought up in that was that I see all other humans, including my partner, as being a toddler and emotions as being explosives. And so anytime I see another human having any kind of emotional reaction, it's like seeing a toddler running around with explosives and it terrifies the fuck out of me. And so I feel like I have to step in. And so I am an extremely hyper responsible person. But I always tied that into my codependency because I feel the need to go in and assume the responsibility of other people 
because they can't be trusted with it around me. I just found that curious. That is a really interesting note. I'm sure there's lots of people that go either way. It's like for, for me, that hyper responsibility, I am all personal accountability. That's what everything is for me. Cause I'm like, everybody should be responsible for their own shit. Cause one of the things that I also struggled with growing up was watching how completely reliant everybody was on you, everybody. And I was like, I am not going to be part of that. And I never want to be responsible for other human beings, especially grown adults. So I will be completely responsible for myself and only myself. And that is how I've lived my life. So for me, the hyper responsibility does tie into the hyper independence. So yeah, that is an an interesting thing that both of us went the hyper responsible route, but one of us went really independent with it. And the other one went kind of codependent with it. But I'm sure that's a really common a common split, a common divide there for people with the hyper responsibility. So another one of the maladaptive behaviors that's very common that you see often in people who were raised in very abusive and traumatic environments is reckless behavior and self-abuse. A lot of people fall into addictions and um, just reckless behavior in general. This is definitely one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that people develop addictions is that they are looking for relief. They are looking for a way to cope. They are looking for an escape. They're looking for something to make the pain go away or at least numb it for a while. And addiction is, of course, a a very prominent form of self-abuse. But even self-harming, that can also be a way to look for relief. Sometimes your emotional and mental anguish is so intense that the only way that you can handle it is by causing yourself physical pain. It is a way to control the emotion when everything is overwhelming. It helps you to bring everything to an absolute focus, an absolute point, and it can calm all of that internal struggle and internal stress and internal emotion. And a lot of people do this for different reasons. Mine, of course, is to, to, to bring down that overstimulation. Um, some people do it in a way to validate the excessive emotion they have because they feel so in turmoil inside, so overwhelmed emotionally, but they've been restricted from being able to communicate this in any way for so long because of an invalidating or an abusive home that they find this is the only way they can express it. And so by cutting yourself or burning yourself, you are physically demonstrating and physically validating that internal pain that you experience. And then on the other side of this as well, there are people that come at self-harm because they feel nothing and they want to feel anything. It's that song by, uh, by Three Days Grace, Pain. You, you want to feel anything because there is nothing inside of you which can happen with PTSD because you get so shut down or depression comes along and you feel complete apathy and you feel completely disconnected from yourself or some people feel completely dissociated or depersonalized and it's frightening to them and they get so tired of feeling that way 
that they do end up self-harming just to feel anything at all, to feel human again, to validate that they exist. And I think that's the biggest piece that I found a lot of times that you do get with self-harm, especially when it's tied into that traumatic home, is it is a way of self-validation. Some people do use it as a form of self-punishment. But I think a lot of people use it as a way to validate their experiences, validate the emotions they feel, to physically represent the amount of pain that's inside of them. But it really, really runs the gamut because, yes, you do have on the one end the individuals that are giving themselves over into addiction, that are participating in reckless behaviors, that are possibly even cutting or burning or self-harming themselves in other ways. But I think you do see self-abuse on these other levels because not all of us did go through physical or sexual abuse that involved the body, but a lot of us did go through psychological abuse or we experience psychological trauma or verbal abuse and that is equally damaging in its own way and we are perpetuating that now we have these horrible messages about ourselves in our heads we refuse to allow ourselves positive things we perpetuate that mentality that we were provided that we were worthless and we were nothing and we could just be discarded or that we could be hurt and yes it's not acting cutting yourself, but it's still horribly impairing way that we continue to perpetuate that abuse in our own minds. We carry that verbal abuse, that psychological abuse in us because we believe in it. I have not participated so much in the self-harm as most people think of it in terms of like cutting or burning myself or things like that. But I definitely have self-abused in a lot of different ways. Some of it has been that insane perfectionism and putting myself down so much and holding myself to really absurdly high standards. Some of it has been very promiscuous sexual behavior when I was younger. I know for me, the, the reasons why I did all of those things were, again, multifaceted. Because part of it was me hurting myself before others could or hurting myself so much that anything that other people did felt like nothing, which made me feel in some way, shape or form like I had power, which I know sounds warped because it is kind of a warped way of thinking, but it was kind of like a a form of self-protection. It was that no matter what you do to me, it's nothing compared to what I would do to myself. So you have nothing on me. You can't actually do anything to me because anything you could do, I assure you, I have hurt myself way worse so many times before. And part of it too was definitely a sense of, of punishment as well, uh, especially the the sexually promiscuous behavior. I did those things, I mean, partially to get acceptance and you know, love, if you want to call it that, from other people, which is not effective. But it was also that I felt that that was what I deserved, that I was garbage. And so I had to behave in ways to put myself down at that level because I don't know. I just thought that's what I was supposed to do. And again, not not very logical. It is a warped way of thinking. I had just become so convinced that I was garbage and that was all I would ever be. And I, I might as well just lean into it. And then another reason why I did it was also as as a way to as a way to punish my abusers. And I again, that is warped. But when my father kicked me out, 
I was 14 and I was a virgin and I was very naive and I'd been very sheltered and I had been abused. But when he kicked me out, he used the excuse of, well, she was a whore and she was you know, sleeping with everybody in town and she was ruining my reputation and she was doing all of those things. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? Fine. Fuck you. I'll do that. I'll do it. I'll just be that monster that you've made me out to be. I'll be the garbage that you've decided that I am. You want to present that image of me to other people? Fine. I'll be that. There's so many reasons why people self-abuse. The reasons are, are endless. Everybody has their own motivations behind it. It is, on one hand, an effective form of self-protection. Self protection. It's not a healthy form of self-protection, but it is an effective one, but it's also a double-edged sword. The same things that you're using, using to protect yourself are also the things that are perpetuating that trauma and perpetuating that abuse on you. And at some point, you're, you have to, you've got to break the cycle. You're the only person that can. There's a lot to be said for the idea of establishing a sense of power or a sense of control, because all of that is in some way taking that control into yourself. You know, you feel you have this mentality that you are only worth this, this mentality, this is what has to be done with you. But a lot of times when you do go through a traumatic home, that is one of the biggest things is you feel out of control. Like you feel you have no control over what happens to you. And if pain and abuse is what is going to happen, it is so much less frightening when you have control over it. And sometimes that is why we step in and we do that because it does give us a sense of control and power that like, okay, I'm going to get hurt, but I'm going to do it to myself. I know when it's going to happen. I know the intensity it's going to happen. I know the form that it's going to come in. And having all of those things taken out of the equation can make it less frightening for us. I think a lot of us that go through traumatic childhoods also, it is the caregivers or the parents, the authority figures in the home that are perpetuating this abuse onto us. And so in some ways, when we become the abuser, we are becoming that authority figure. We're taking a sense of power and we're taking a sense of control. And that's also sometimes why we become not only just abusers to ourselves, but we do become abusers to others in our lives, friends, lovers, children even. Part of that is we finally feel in control. And it is terrifying to feel out of control when your life or your body or your psyche is on the line of being obliterated. That is a terrifying feeling. I just want to make one note before we move on from this, uh, because I did speak of, of being sexually promiscuous and, and those sorts of things. I do want to note that there is a difference between using sex as a form of self-abuse and just being somebody who is very empowered by their sexuality. There's a huge difference there because some people, for them, the, the sex is healthy and it's tied into their empowerment and it's not coming from a self-abusive space. So I don't want to indicate that every person that is really in touch with their sexuality and explores a lot of different things and tries a lot of different things. I don't want to suggest that all people who do that are coming from a toxic space. I'm only speaking for myself. For me, it was coming from a very toxic space. And I know that that is a common thing for a lot of people as well but does not apply to everybody. Just want to put that disclaimer in there. All right. So another one of those maladaptive behaviors that we also see is 
running away, which is another one that I've done really good at. I am amazing at running away. I suck at running in real life, but running away from relationships and connections and people and my own emotions, I am amazing at that. Like if there was an Olympics for that, I would definitely get the gold. I am so well versed in running away from relationships that I have run away from marriages. My, my second husband was a, a very good man, a very good man, a very supportive partner, was fully invested, was willing to go through therapy with me, was willing to be there for me as I processed all of my trauma and my bullshit. And instead, not only did I run away from him, I shoved him away forcefully. On that, I've got that into the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I have run away from the most casual connections with other human beings. I shit you not, there have been times when I have gone into a grocery store, had an awkward interaction with a cashier, and then never gone back to that grocery store for fear that I would run into that cashier again. If anybody is well-versed in running away, it would be me trying not to run away so easily from everything now, but that that was my go-to for a really long time. Anytime I would run into the first difficulty or the first awkwardness or the first moment where I felt embarrassed or ashamed, anything that felt uncomfortable in a dynamic with another human being, I would instantly bail. No matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how closely connected I was to that person, I would just bail. Running away, I think, is a very big one for me as well, as I think it is for a lot of people that experience trauma. And I think part of I mean, that's directly related to that adrenal response, which gets fucked with when you've got a traumatic childhood, fight, flight, freeze or fawn. It's one of those. And we keep carrying it with us because it was a way to stay safe. I've spent my whole life running away from things. I've never actually run toward anything. You know, most of us were always trying to achieve a goal or reach this idea and we're motivated by these rewards. I have never been motivated by rewards because I have always been running away from the punishments behind me. My entire life has been nothing but running away. You get a degree because I was trying to run away from my own psychological issues in my head. You know, I went and moved out here to live off grid and got my own land and made this happen by tooth and by nail, not because I wanted this ideal, but because I was trying to run away from a culture that scares me. But running away has become part of my life. It's actually one of the things I'm trying to do right now that I'm actively working on in my own trauma work is I'm trying trying to begin doing things because I want to. I want to start running toward something or at least leisurely strolling towards something because I have spent my whole life running from that I have never yet experienced going toward something because I honestly wanted it. Another maladaptive behavior that is uh, pointing out other people's flaws, pointing out what's wrong with them, with their plans. This is twofold in my mind is one, it does give us that sense of control. And it does give us that sense of power because we're like, ha ha, I am, I am better than you and I can judge you. And it's also then I'm creating a sense of safety here because now I'm the authority, right? And you can't judge me and you can't come back on me because I've already done it to you and I've already pushed you away. A lot of us do externalize and we point out each other's flaws or the mistakes in the plan or what you did wrong or how you could have done better. And we nitpick, nitpick, nitpick. 
And I do think part of that, not everybody, but I do think for some of us, that is a trauma response. And it's a way, again, to self-protect ourselves, because that's what all these maladaptive behaviors are. They were a way for us to protect ourselves. And sometimes that may even be a way of deflection as well. Like, well, if I point out everything that's wrong with this person, then the boss is going to focus on them, and then they're not going to see my mistakes, and then my job will be secure, and I'll be safe. I think one of my biggest externalizing factors that kind of comes in with pointing at other flaws, but is it's assigning blame. And this is something even to this day I have, I struggle with and I have been actively working on in the last few months. Whenever anything goes wrong, I assign blame and I assign it away from me. Again, part of this is my ego is I never really learned how to fail because failure had consequences that was too big. And so if something goes wrong and it's my fault, that is crushing. That is terrifying. The world is going to end and I cannot handle that. And so I push it out towards other. Well, it's your mistake because you can handle it and you can deal with being a fuck up. I can't because if I fuck up, horrible things happen. If you fuck up, you're just human. Anytime anything went wrong in my relationship, or fuck, anytime anything went wrong in my life, I would blame the person closest to me, which typically was the person I was in an intimate relationship with because I don't associate much with other people, which isn't fair because sometimes things just happen. If we were driving somewhere and we got a flat tire, there would have to be blame. Well, this was your fault. You didn't check the tire pressure. And when was the last time we got these tires rotated? And you should have done this. And you should and you should and you should have. And it went on and on and on. And that was not fair to my partner because it wasn't their fault. Flat tires happen. Even if you're up on maintenance, even if you do everything right, that's a reality of mistakes. It's the reality of shit going wrong. Blame didn't need to be there, but I needed it to be there. I needed to blame somebody else because if I was at fault, I was crushed and I couldn't deal with that. And I am now 40 years old and I am finally at the point in my mental health journey that I have been able to accept blame and accept it and not make a huge deal out of it. Not need to say, oh no, this is my fault. I'm so sorry. I'm such a horrible person and make it a huge to do so they can't punish me. I've just been able to say, yeah, that went wrong. That was my fault. I'm sorry. I own that. And that's it. And just be able to move on with it. And let me tell you, it's honestly very terrifying. Even just talking about it, it brings a little bit of tears to my eyes because this is still so new to me. And I think this is something a lot of us probably should have learned in a healthy normative home when we were probably still in the single digits. But most of us didn't, especially if you grew up thinking, I can never make a mistake. It's interesting after hearing you describe that, going back a little earlier in the conversation when we were talking about our two different vantage points on hyper-responsibility, I feel like this is another area where that kind of shows up because for you, you felt responsible for everybody. And so it would make sense that you have difficulty accepting blame or responsibility, as it were, and externalizing that and pushing that on other people as a form of self-protection and trying to control everything because you were responsible for everything. Whereas for me, when we were making these notes, I really struggled when we were talking about externalizers. 
because that is so not me. Part of it is that hyper responsibility that I'm like, well, you're responsible for yourself. So I don't really care. And if it affects me in some way, the way that it affects me is my own personal problem. That's like been a motto for me going through life is, well, that sounds like a personal problem. Whether I'm talking about somebody else's problems or my own, well, that sounds like a real personal problem. Everything is a real personal problem. So you deal with yours, I'll deal with mine. There's not that blaming other people sort of thing. And I don't feel the need to control other people or point out their flaws or anything like that, because I'm not responsible for that person. I'm only responsible for me. And I'll point out my own flaws. And I actually have no problem for the most part, accepting accountability or accepting blame when I fucked up. Like that's not that big of a deal to me. And I think part of that is because I am so used to that independence and thinking everything that happens in my life is my own responsibility. I am accountable for everything. So if I fuck up, well, then I fucked up because it happens and I'm human and I'm responsible for everything that involves me. But I think the other part of it too is because you were the golden child in our in our household and I was the scapegoat. Well, when I get blamed for things or when people pick at my flaws or whatever, I'm like, okay, well, that's nothing new. <laughs> what, what more have you got? I, I don't ever really find myself externalizing. I, I think my partner is much the same way. Like both of us are so aversive to externalizing that we over internalize things and things that are a problem for both of us. A lot of times we're like, well, that sounds like a real personal problem speaking to ourselves. So it's like, well, if it's my problem, I am responsible for dealing with how I how I handle it and how I feel about it. And you're not responsible for anything, which in an intimate relationship with a partner also does not work any better than externalizing does. Because if both people are internalizing everything, then you also don't get things resolved effectively and in a healthy, loving way. Because both people are thinking, well, I'm the shit show. Sorry. Sorry, you have to deal with this broken person that is me. (laughs) You know, I think that isn't yet one more way you know, it's not a specific maladaptive behavior. It goes back into those general ideas. But I think that is yet another way that that childhood trauma echoes into our adult life is we do carry these roles with us. And I can speak specifically to being the golden child. Nearly every every job I've had almost, I have been the golden child. I've been the employee of the month. I have outperformed everybody because I have to, because that's what needs to be done. And I also go in with the mentality, not only will I have to, but this is how people react, will react to me because I am such a good employee, because I am such a good people pleaser. And I get very, I would say triggered. Um, I, I feel very unsafe when people aren't pleased by me. And, and so it's very concerning when I am not treated like the golden child, because the golden child is the one that fawns. The golden child is the one that people pleases. The golden child, at least for me, was the one that was perfect. And that's what I had to be because that's what allowed everybody else to be safe. Not just my safety, but everybody's safety. Another maladaptive behaviors that that echoes into our adult lives as well is that conflict avoidance. Because even though I do externalize, even though I'm in a completely different role with you, I will do just about anything to avoid a direct conflict. Conflict terrifies me. I understand after years of study and working in the mental health industry, there are apparently ways to safely and assertively disagree with someone. But to actually do that about anything that's important, sure, I'll debate. You want to just debate about knowledge, something that's not important? I'll debate all day. I'm okay with that. But if it's an actual conflict between me and another person, an actual honest-to-God disagreement, coworker, cashier, boyfriend, sister, doesn't matter, I will do anything 
to avoid conflict. And I think that is a very, very common thing among those individuals that did go through that high childhood trauma for many reasons. One, because conflict usually was horrifying when it did happen in a traumatic household. And two, a lot of us, especially if you have a lot of self-awareness, we understand that we don't have good ways to address it. Like if we do honestly love the person, the only way I know how to address a conflict is to become angry or to become ugly or to completely accept the blame. We don't, we don't know what to do. So how do you do this in a way that you don't hurt somebody else? Conflict is something that I have gotten better at over the years. I, it used to be one of those things I would just completely run away from. I'm at a space now where I can engage in conversation when a conflict comes up. But one of the challenges for me is gauging the individual that I'm having a conflict with. Because some people I will still avoid conflicts with because there's no... There's no good end result there. Like I'm somebody who hates debating. I have a couple friends who fucking love a debate. They start debating, I ditch. I just go silent. Like I, I will go radio silent. If I'm face to face with them, I'll run off to the bathroom. I'll, I will do something to avoid it. We're going to end up arguing and feeling tense towards each other for nothing. But with Calvin, I mean, obviously if something comes up that's a conflict, eventually we have to deal with it because we have to live with each other. And if we want to have a harmonious relationship, it's it, you know, it's going back to the, the stuff I was talking about with Terrence Real earlier, harmony, disharmony, repair. If we are in disharmony and we want to repair so we can get back to harmony, we have to deal with the conflict. Different people deal with conflict in different ways. So like I have to gauge now how I handle conflict with individual people. Like I know with Calvin, he will shut down when the conflict initially comes up, when something is bothering me and I have to tell him because it's going to be an issue. When I bring it up, I know he's going to shut down. But I also know that if I let him shut down, if I say my piece, I don't drag it on too long. I don't get super emotional. I don't ask him a million questions. If I say my piece, if I let him have space afterward, a lot of times he will make an effort to do his part to help resolve that situation. And then I've been in relationships with with other people or have friendships with other people where I had to handle conflict completely differently with them because the only way to resolve it was to resolve it then and there. Because if I did give them space, they would take that as a sign that, oh, I don't have to do anything. This is over now, right? Okay, we can back away from this like this never happened. That's been the challenge for me now as I have evolved past conflict avoidance is gauging how different different people are when you are dealing with conflict and deciding which battles to fight, which ones to let go of, and how you have to strategically go about handling that conflict. You're definitely further along in that than I am. But I think you've also been willing to confront things a lot more than I am because I'm usually the ghoster and the one that just silently disappears instead of sets boundaries. (laughs) Um, So the last maladaptive behavior I want to talk about today is extremely controlling behavior. And I definitely can speak to this because I I honestly don't know how anybody lives with me because I think I am a controlling nightmare. It's not necessarily in my environment, but I need... I need a lot of control to feel safe. I feel out of control most of the time. I never, never honestly, truly feel safe. And so I have to do a lot of things to feel in control. I have to feel autonomous of my decisions. I have to feel like I have control of my life. Like I have control of my time. Like I have control of my environment. Unfortunately, when you live with somebody else, that also means you tend to end up controlling 
their environment and their time and their choices inadvertently because what they're doing in their life is intertwined with you. But if control is more important to you, it kind of overrides them and what they want a little bit. And that's, that is how it is. Because for me, control stems from that necessity for safety. It stems from that necessity to feel okay, to not have my heart in my throat, to not be constantly looking over my shoulder or hypervigilant. My controlling behavior often does override most other people's attempts at control because it doesn't stem from such a primal, frightening place. For me, the the extreme need for control, much like I internalize everything else, I also internalize that. Like, I am not a very controlling person with other people because other people are not my responsibility. But I control the living shit out of every single detail of my conduct. I used to expect that I should be able to control every single emotion I felt, every thought I had, every every behavior, absolutely everything. I used to get so angry at myself for even being clumsy enough to knock over a glass. That's absurd. That's very unhealthy. It's very toxic, but that's the extent to which my need to control took over my life. It wasn't my environment. It wasn't the people around me. It was all very internal, but I was I was basically in a, in a domestic abuse situation with myself. When I look back on it, that's what it feels like. I was being incredibly controlling and cruel and undermining and manipulative and all of those things towards myself. So that's how the extreme control, I think, affects people who are internalizers. You don't take it out on other people, but you sure as shit do take it out on yourself every second of every day. I know I do have a lot of externalizing qualities, but I also have a lot of internalizing qualities because I am that codependent hyper responsibility enabler person. It, it goes both ways for me. So I am extremely controlling of myself and berating of myself and of other people because I'm responsible for you. And this is how I know how to treat people. So this is how I'm going to treat you. <laughs> so I have been I have been doing better at this. Thank God. All right, so let's jump into triggers. As I said in the beginning of the episode, this is usually what we think of when we think about, oh, my childhood trauma or any of my trauma and how it comes up in my adult life, we think about being triggered. And this is definitely a way that that childhood trauma echoes into adult life is those triggers. And actually, I did want to tell you all out there that if you are interested in discovering what some of your triggers are and doing that work to find out what exactly is triggering me and how do I handle it when this happens, we've actually created a book. It is called Managing Triggers, a quick guide to help you manage and identify trauma triggers. And this has some forms in it and walks you through some of the basic terminology to help you even understand what triggers are, why they happen, and how to pinpoint what specific triggers are so you can help control that in your life. Because that's the reality. And that is why one of the biggest echoes of childhood trauma into adult life is triggers. Because we don't always know what they're going to be. We don't always know where they are. And they are generally not actually trauma specific in the current context. 
they're just their part of everyday life. And so it sidelines us. It's a certain perfume. It's the way a person acts. It can even be something as simple as a dish in the sink. That was for the longest one of my simple triggers was a dirty dish in the sink. And that's going to happen all the time everywhere. And so you can imagine what happens every time you see a dirty dish in your home sink, you automatically feel just drowning in that initial trauma again that's horrifying and it seems ridiculous too and i feel like this is one of the parts of ptsd that really makes some of us feel so crazy is because it doesn't make sense and we get that it's not a big deal i could look at the dish and i could say but it's not an issue and it took me years to figure out it wasn't the dish that i was upset about it wasn't that my partner left work for me to do it was that when i was 13 i was taken out of school and i was expected to raise our entire household i was responsible for my mother who was depressed and could not manage anything by herself i was responsible for finances and grocery shopping and my younger sister and my older brother and cleaning the entire house and all of the housework with no training or understanding how to do any of this not to mention all of the animals and all the other shit that comes with this and when I stepped away from that because I got to a point where I was able to go to my grandmother's on the weekends and I would come back. Nobody had done anything. And I mean anything. So I would walk into the house. There would be piles of poop from the dogs all across the living room floor and areas of urine. And we're talking Missouri in the summertime with no air conditioning. So some summers I would come home and there were literally dishes of half-eaten food or milk sitting around the house with maggots growing in them. And this is what I would have to deal with, with no escape. This was my responsibility. And so when I saw that dish in the sink, I was this 13-year-old girl drowning again, surrounded by the smell of shit and urine and having to deal with maggots all over with no support and no concept of how to do anything. But that's, that's what triggers do. You see this one simple part of just everyday life and it sucker punches you right back into that trauma where you feel exactly like you did in that moment. It, it, this is probably the biggest trigger that I still have in my day-to-day -day life. And it, for whatever reason, only applies to my romantic partner. I, I, I don't give a fuck about anybody else. <laughs> but if my romantic partner is late, I lose my fucking mind. If, if it's like five minutes late, whatever. I, and I mentioned this earlier in the episode, the first year Calvin and I lived together, Oh my God, we fought about this so much. We fought about this more than we fought about any other thing. Yes, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, part of it is was genuine fear that something horrible had happened to him because I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm always waiting for somebody that I care about to be ripped away from me. I'm always fearful of that loss of the few people I'm very connected to. But another thing that really triggered me about it, and I did not recognize this part of it until at least halfway into that, that first year we were together, because I had to start looking at it as like, okay, yes, him being three hours late getting home, inappropriate, not okay. Um, and I did reality check that with other people. And most people I talked to were like, no, if my partner was three hours late getting home and I couldn't get in touch with him, I would also assume the worst. Okay. You know, five, 10 minutes late, fine. Three hours, not okay. But I have been with lots of people romantically 
who would either be running late or they would no show or they would cancel at the last at the last minute. And it had become a pattern in my life. Something more is going on here. I'm not just upset with Calvin and I'm, I'm obviously not just concerned about his safety because I wasn't just getting worried. I was getting angry. So I started paying attention to like the things that were going through my head. Aside from all of the worries of him being seriously injured or him being dead or something along those lines, there were also these themes of you never fucking follow through on what you're going to say. I can't believe you did this. Are you ever going to come home? What are you doing out there? What's so much more important than being home when you say you're going to be? What I realized is that I would get so triggered by that because as a child, other than Autumn, Autumn was pretty reliable, but all of the, I felt like all of the other people in my life never followed through on what they said they were going to do. They were always running late. They were always no showing. They were always canceling. Our father was almost never home. Our, our brother was almost never home. Mom was passed out in a bedroom somewhere. It, you know, people would make promises. They wouldn't follow through on what they said they were going to do. They would just disappear for days at a time. And I would have no idea where they were, if they were ever coming back or if they were alive or they were dead. And I would go into panic. And I would also take that on as like, I am unimportant and nobody cares about me. And I will be continually abandoned by every person that I ever care about. And I perpetuated those patterns in my adult life, in my romantic relationships. I had to get to a, a place where I could recognize that that's what was actually going on. Calvin being late. Yes, that was the, the thing that triggered me. And yes, I was concerned about his well-being. But I also had to figure out why I was angry. And I was angry because I was afraid that if he left he would just never come back. And either it would be because fate ripped him away from me and he was dead or because he decided that I was not important to him and that I was not worth sticking around for and that it would be totally acceptable to just up and leave and never come back because that had been my experience. That was the experience that I had with my father too, where one day he just decided I was no longer useful and he didn't want me around anymore. And it was so abrupt when that happened that I've carried that with me. And now anytime my romantic partner is late, I assume they are never coming back and I am unimportant to them. Everything else matters to them more than I do. And this relationship that I've been in with Calvin is the first relationship where I've had a partner who is running late and sometimes he is kind of flaky, but I know for a fact it's not because I'm unimportant to him. That's not what it has to do with, but this is the first relationship that I've been in where I've been able to start really healing that wound because every other time it was almost like I was chasing that trigger. That's what was happening. I was almost looking for it. And that's one of those ways that going back to the Terrence real thing, we marry our baggage. I kept trying to find the repair for that fear. I kept trying to find somebody who would love me enough that they would not abandon me. They would not neglect me. They would follow through. I kept looking for that. I finally found it, but I kept looking for it and I kept coming up short. I kept looking for the repair and it just wasn't there. 
that's something that gets overlooked a lot because when we do think about PTSD, I think one of the, uh, even the diagnostic criteria is that you basically go out of your way to avoid the thing that was traumatizing. And so a lot of us think that I'm instinctually going to avoid the triggers, which isn't always accurate because sometimes we don't honestly know what they are. Like Ivy said, it's complex and you've got to sort through it and identify all sorts of things, which is why we created the book to help with all of that. But also, I think some of us do seek out those triggers. Like Ivy said, she was trying to perform that pattern to finally get to the point she could heal it. But because she wasn't aware of that yet, she just kept re-traumatizing herself. Also, especially when you are fresh from the trauma, when you've just gotten out of that household, when you've just gotten out of that relationship, it feels normal. Walking on eggshells, constant anxiety that feels normal. Yes, you hate it. Yes, it is intolerable. Yes, you do not want to experience it but your body perceives it as homeostasis. That fever of trauma has become a normal temperature and your body is fighting you to maintain it. And so I think some of us seek out those triggers because they feel familiar. They feel normal. They feel okay. And we understand what life is when we're like that. Because sometimes when you first get out of that trauma, if it was bad enough, if it was long enough, if you were isolated enough, you literally know nothing else. And because fear of the unknown often goes hand in hand with having a traumatic childhood, sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And so you do end up chasing those triggers either consciously or subconsciously sometimes. I also want to point out with triggers before we move on, like Ivy was talking about how she had to go through all those layers to figure out what exactly was happening and what thoughts were here. They are complicated and multi-layered. And also sometimes the trigger itself can be really complex. And I actually, I talked about this in my most recent blog, uh, Complex Trauma, Complex Triggers. When you go through a childhood of trauma, years of trauma, you are exposed to a lot of things that can get associated with the trauma. And sometimes those things aren't as simple and pinpointable as there is a dish in the sink. This person is late. Sometimes there are multiple factors to the trigger. And so an example I have of this, which I included in the blog, is I found in multiple positions and even in my personal life, I was having a triggered reaction to large white women specifically that I worked with or that I interacted with. I was like trying to track back to like, okay, were there any large women in my childhood and nobody was in that 300 pound range and so it really didn't make sense and then I realized no way it's it's these large white women but they have some sort of authority over me and then I was getting looking for this authority figure and then I'm like no it's large white women who have authority over me who seem generally displeased or upset with their own life bodies or choices and I'm like okay this is getting really specific and weird and then I realized no and then there's an added thing of also it's these large white women who have authority over me who seem generally displeased or upset with their own life bodies and choices who cannot be people pleased who when I attempt to people please them it actually actively upsets them I still have not quite figured out where that trigger is taking me yet I'm doing that work but sometimes triggers are that complex where it's not just this thing you can point to. It's this multi-level, multi-faceted, many areas of a thing or a person or a behavior or an action that you have to figure out and take into account, which makes it so much harder. And like I said, though, triggers, that there's a reason that triggers and PTSD and trauma, all of that goes hand in hand because those are one of the biggest ways, the sucker punch ways that that childhood trauma echoes into our adult life. And I think 
that's partially because it is something we don't necessarily have control over. When you get confronted with a trigger, that power gets taken away from you again. And I think that's why they're so devastating is because you do feel powerless yet again. Now, like we said before in the episode, we're talking about all of this because it is important to know and to be aware that these are echoes of trauma. Because if you don't realize this is this is an echo, this is part of the trauma, you do end up continually re-traumatizing yourself, going through it again and again and again and again, and you cannot step in and heal. And we wanted to release this episode before we rolled into that holiday season because this awareness, especially around trauma and trauma triggers and how it repeats in our adult life is so vital during the holiday season for so many reasons. Right off the bat, holidays are stressful. Whether you have family, whether you participate in them or not, they are fucking stressful. You've got retail Christmas music playing, which if you work in retail is just fucking torture. You've got pressures to buy. You've got schedule changes. You've got social obligations. Even if you're just canceling on them, you have work parties and shit you need to attend. If you are in touch with your family, you may be having to be pulled into all these family obligations as well. It increases your stress level. When you have more stress, you're more likely to having these triggers and these issues with your past trauma come up because it's just a matter of resources. You may spend a lot of resources on a regular basis being able to maintain your functioning. And when some of those resources have to get paid out to holiday stress, you may not have enough left to keep that functioning up that you've had to bolster around or put that cast around that trauma to keep going. And I would also add to that, that if you are somebody who struggles with sensory overstimulation, man, the holiday season can be a nightmare. I generally try to avoid going out much during the holidays. And I used to think it was just because I was being a Grinch and because of, you know, my family trauma and stuff like that. But a big part of it, honestly, is that I cannot handle all of the sensory input because it is a lot of loud music and Christmas carols being played everywhere. And it's a lot of bright lights and shiny things and you have vivid colors and all of that. And there's tons of people around and there's movement and there's all of this stuff going on around you. And if you are somebody who struggles with sensory overload, that adds to the rest of the holiday stress, which leaves you even more short on internal resources to handle things. During the holiday season, we are also having increased exposure to societal traditions, cultural symbols and religious symbology. For a lot of people that have religious trauma tacked on top of maybe their family trauma and everything, Christmas can be a very, very difficult time particularly if you live in a part of the world where there is a lot of religious traditions tied into Christmas as well, that can cause a lot of issues. And then just, you know, societal traditions in general around Christmas, there's so much emphasis on family. Well, if your family shit, you're not really going to want to deal with that. You're, you're going to be stressed out by all of this emphasis on family. And if you're somebody like me who really struggles with just even being around people. So that's another way and another reason why it's really important to know in advance how your traumas echo for you and what your triggers potentially are. 
And because the holidays usually do increase stress for everyone, including the traumatic family you may have come from, it's a good chance that those Christmas or those Thanksgiving holidays increased whatever traumatic events were going on in the home. So those cultural symbols that you are seeing, the Christmas trees or the hymns that are being sung, those themselves might end up being triggers. I know for me, winter was a potentially bad time. Part of my mother's issues, there was a lot going on, but I think part of it, she did have the seasonal affective disorder. And so things got a lot worse then. She also had had a lot of miscarriages around Christmas time. So that was very depressing for her. And the whole holiday season with all of its pressures for us was this downhill spiral into nastiness and decay. So it started around the end of October with our father's birthday. It got worse by Thanksgiving. It was almost unbearable, if not completely unbearable by Christmas. And then it just continued being the shitty nastiness with potential suicide attempts all the way up until Ivy's birthday or a little bit past in February. So this entire holiday season from the end of Halloween all the way through and past New Year's into almost Valentine's Day, all of that is shit. Even now, I find myself getting more depressed and getting more guarded as the holidays approach because for so long, they signified so much bullshit. And some of it is tiny little things and some of it's just the fact that it's fucking holidays. I just want to make one more note as far as cultural things. We're talking about the holiday season overall, like Thanksgiving is what I'm particularly thinking of. Another way that this can be traumatic and triggering is I know a lot of indigenous people really struggle with the holiday of Thanksgiving because it really does represent in a very direct way kind of the exploitation of their people for generations upon generations and the lies around that exploitation that can be very traumatic for you as well for for Thanksgiving because it's it's not always necessarily a great holiday for you guys. I I just wanted to add that in there because I think that does get overlooked a lot when we're talking about holiday stress that for indigenous Native Americans that that's Thanksgiving is kind of a shit holiday. Like some, I've seen some people like really own it and they take it back and they take the power back over it. But I know that can be a really difficult time when you have a holiday that's literally a representation of the exploitation of your of your people. And then again, uh, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the sometimes these echoes of trauma are generational and they're cultural. They're not just a small family unit. And this is a broken system. And even our holidays are broken. So the holidays themselves can represent trauma. Very literally. Now, as Ivy was saying, also around the holiday season, you may also find yourself having to participate more in family traditions and family gatherings and family social obligations. This presents its own unique issues when we're talking about a traumatic childhood for so many reasons. You know, first off, like we started out at the very beginning, when you're around these people that were traumatizing to you or that you were just around when the trauma happened, you get pulled back into those old patterns. So even if it was a parent that was abusive, but you're now having a holiday celebration with the siblings who were supportive of one another, you can still find yourself being pulled back into these stressful patterns, back into bickering, or even just back into the feeling of 
being in that traumatic space with none of you doing anything negative or harmful to one another. And if those toxic or abusive people are still there and you're still expected to see them, and for whatever reason you have chosen to continue to have them in your life, which is your right and your choice to do so, you are exposing yourself to that toxic person. You're exposing yourself directly to the abuser. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there is no larger trigger for all of the trauma you experienced than the person that performed that trauma on you. And so that is going to be extremely stressful for you. And that is even more so if the family unit you were with completely invalidated, ignored, said that trauma you experienced didn't exist. Because now you're having to deal with all of the trauma that's come up, deal with having to put on a happy face for this toxic person and deal with everybody saying, oh, you're crazy or you're lying or that never happened. That is a cocktail for madness. And if you are able to survive that, more power to you because I don't think I could make it through that. But we do want to finish out this episode with just a a little bit of hope. And that hope is that you now are an adult. And as an adult, you have more power. You can make choices for yourself and you can make changes and you can decide not to be around certain people. You can remove yourself from situations. You have the, the power to set boundaries. You have power over your own life. I I hope it makes you hopeful because that's definitely been, for me, one of the most vital things to remember as I've gone through life as an adult, like everything when I was a kid was so bad because I had no control over anything. I had no power over anything. I couldn't leave. I couldn't fight back for myself. I couldn't really advocate for myself. I was stuck in that pattern of trauma. I had no exit. I had no opportunities to get away, really. I was well and truly stuck. So if you did experience that childhood trauma and you were in a very toxic, dysfunctional family growing up and you are out now and you are on your own, you have power. These traumas don't have to control your life. Your abusers don't get to control your life anymore. You can make positive changes for yourself. You decide what kind of life you're going to live from this point forward. If you're listening to this episode, you not only have power, but you are already on your way to the healing journey. Because the very first step I think of the journey is knowing that you need to take it is gaining that awareness. And so even if this is this episode that you're listening to right now is the first thing that you have ever done on that healing journey, you're on it. You are on that healing journey and you're on your way to being able to do the work you need so that these echoes get quieter and quieter and quieter until they are no longer screams in your ears, but just minor inconveniences in the background. The the bit of hope that we offered was for, was for people who have reached adulthood and they can escape. But I do want to say, if we've got anybody out there who is a teenager who is listening to this, please hold on. I know it's really hard and you feel like it's going to go on forever and you feel stuck. I made a suicide attempt on Christmas when I was 14. I get it. It feels like it's going to go on forever and you're never going to have any escape from it and there's no point in going on and you have other things besides just family that's probably 
probably stressing you out because being a teenager, let's face it, for a lot of people, it sucks. But please hold on because it does get better and someday you will have the power and you will be able to make choices for yourself that you're not able to right now. And I hope that you will hold on to that and keep going. You won't be stuck forever. There are ways out. You just have to bide your time. Even when you are experiencing the trauma, you can still be on your healing journey. Both Ivy and I started our healing journey in the midst of the horrible home we were in. I started at 13, 14 years old on my healing journey when I was dealing with all of that shit. Uh, I started therapy a week after I turned 15. So even in the midst of the trauma, you can still be in the healing journey. It's definitely not easy. I, I know that. But like Ivy said, there is... There is hope. And in our next episode, we will also offer some very specific advice on how to help navigate these family and social relationships that can occur during Thanksgiving and the holiday season to help you on that healing journey. All right, so let's go ahead and wrap up for today. And just a reminder to everybody out there, we do have that trigger book available, The Managing Triggers. It's available on differentfunctional.com slash products. It can help you pinpoint what your triggers are and how to manage them so they don't keep fucking up your life so bad. And it will be on sale this week only. So do check it out and get that special discounted price. And then I will have Ivy go ahead and throw you all of our Connecty bits. So if you want to get a hold of us otherwise, you can do so. I almost tried to get the Connecty bits without unmuting my microphone again, because that that seems to be how I roll most of the time. Just leave, leave it on mute and expect everybody to hear me anyhow, somehow. Okay, you can find us at www differentfunctional.com. You can find us on Facebook as Different Functional. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. And you can find us on Patreon as Different Functional as well. If you want to email us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at differentfunctional at gmail.com. We would also really love it if you'd leave us some comments, if you'd interact with us on social media, rate and review the podcast. Tell your friends about us. Tell your tell your enemies about us. Tell your dog about us. Tell the cat about us. The cat probably won't care because cats don't care about anything, I don't think. And tell your crazy Uncle Fred. He probably wants to know or he probably needs to hear about us. So by all means, please tell everyone, please. We, we would love that. All right. So for today, just wanted to remind everybody that as always, different does not mean defective. Oh.